Welcome to the video book summary of Freakonomics, A Rogue Economist Explores the Hidden Side of Everything by Stephen Levitt. This book was published in 2005 and weighing in at 315 pages. Which is more dangerous, a gun or a swimming pool? What do school teachers and sumo wrestlers have in common? How much do parents really matter? These may not sound like typical questions for an economist to ask, but Stephen D. Levitt is not your typical economist. He studied the riddles of everyday life, from cheating and crime to parenting and sports, and reaches conclusions that turn conventional wisdom on its head. Freakonomics is a groundbreaking collaboration between Levitt and Stephen D. Dobner. An award-winning author and journalist, they set out to explore the inner workings of a crack gang, the truth about real estate agents to the searches of the Ku Klux Klan, and much more. Through forceful storytelling and wry insight, they show that Economist is, at the root, the study of incentives, how people get what they want or need, especially when other people want or need the same thing. If you like what you hear in the book summary, I strongly suggest you buy the book using the link in the description. So without further ado, I bring you the book summary of Freakonomics. Incentives. An incentive is a simply a means of urging people to do more of a good thing and less of a bad thing. But most incentives don't come about organically. Someone, an economist or a politician or a parent, has to invent them. There are three basic flavors of incentive. Economic, social, and moral. Very often, an incentive scheme will include all three varieties. Late fines. Daycare center often have a clearly stated policy that children are supposed to be picked up by 4 p.m., but often parents are late. A pair of economists who heard of this dilemma offered a solution. Find the tardy parents. The economists conducted a study of 10 daycare centers in Haifa, Israel. The fine was not introduced immediately. For four weeks, the economists simply kept track of the number of parents who came late. They were, on average, eight late pickups per week per daycare center. In the fifth week, the fine was enacted. It was announced that any parent arriving more than 10 minutes late would pay $3 per child for each incident. The fee would be added to the parent's monthly bill. After the fine was enacted, the number of late pickups promptly went up. Before long, there were 20 late pickups per week, more than double the original average. The incentive had plainly backfired. The problem? The $3 fine was simply too small. For that price, a parent with one child could afford to be late every day and only pay an extra $60 each month. Just one-sixth of the base fee. What is the fine had to be set at $100 instead of $3. That would have likely put an end to the late pickups though it would have been engaged plenty of ill will. Any incentive is inherently a trade-off. The trick is to balance the extremes. But there's another problem with the daycare center fine. It substituted an economic incentive, the $3 penalty, for a moral incentive, the guilt that parents were supposed to feel when they came late. For just a few dollars each day, parents could buy off their guilt. Furthermore, the small size of the fine sent a signal to the parents that late pickups weren't such a big problem. Crime. Some of the most compelling incentives yet invented have been put in place to deter crime. Considering this fact, it might be worthwhile to take a familiar question. Why is there so much crime in modern society? And stand on its head. Why isn't there a lot more crime? After all, every one of us regularly passes up the opportunity to maim, steal and defraud. The chance of going to jail, thereby losing your job, your house, and your freedom, all of which are essentially economic penalties. 
and certainly a strong incentive. But when it comes to crime, people also respond to moral incentives. They want to they don't want to do something they consider wrong. And social incentives. They don't want to be seen by others as doing something wrong. For certain types of misbehavior, social incentives are terribly painful. Information. In the late 1990s, the price of term life insurance fell dramatically. This posed something of a mystery, for the decline had no obvious cause. For other types of insurance were certainly not falling in price, nor that there had been any radical changes among insurance companies. So what happened? The internet happened. In 1996, Quotesmith.com became the first website that enabled a customer to compare the price of term life insurance sold by dozens of companies. So what really matters is the price. Shopping around for the cheapest policy, a process that had been convoluted and time-consuming, was suddenly made simple. With customers able to instantaneously find the cheapest policy, the more expensive companies had no choice but to lower the prices. It's worth noting that these websites only listed prices. They didn't even sell the policies. So it wasn't really an insurance they were peddling. They were dealing in information. Information is a beacon, a kudgel, an olive branch, a deterrent, depending on who wields it and how. Information is so powerful that the assumption of information, even if the information does not actually exist, can have a sobering effect. Currency. It is common for one party to a transaction to have better information than another party. In the parlance of economists, such as the cases known as an information asymmetry, we expect as a variety of capitalism that someone, usually an expert, knows more than someone else, usually a consumer. But information asymmetries everywhere have been in fact mortally wounded by the internet. Information is the currency of the internet. As a medium, the internet is brilliantly efficient at shifting information from the hands of those who have it into the hands of those who do not. Often, as is the case of term life insurance prices, the information existed, but in a woefully scattered way. The internet has not accomplished what no consumer advocate could. It has vastly shrunk the gap between the experts and the public. Experts and fear. Many experts use their information to your detriment. Experts depend on the fact that you don't have the information they do, or that you are absolutely befuddled by the complexity of their operation that you wouldn't know what to do with the information if you had it, or that you are in so in awe of their expertise that you wouldn't dare to challenge them. Armed with information, experts can exert a gigantic, if unspoken, leverage, fear. Fear that your children would find you dead on the bathroom floor of a heart attack if you did not have the angioplasty surgery. The fear created by commercial experts may not quite rival the fear created by terrorists like the Ku Klux Klan, but the principle is the same. Everyone does it. It would not be naive to suppose that people abuse information only when they are acting as experts or agents of commerce. Agents and experts are people too, which suggests we are more likely to abuse information in our personal lives as well whether by withholding true information or editing the information we choose to put forth. A real estate agent may wink and nod when she lists a well-maintained house, but we each have our own equivalent hedges. Think about how you describe yourself during a job interview versus how you might describe yourself on a first date. Politics. The gulf between the information we publicly proclaim and the information we know to be true is often vast. Or put a more familiar way, we say one thing and do another. 
This can be seen in personal relationships, in commercial transactions, and of course, in politics. By now, we are fully accustomed to the false public proclamations of politicians themselves. But voters like to consider an election between a black candidate and a white candidate. Might white voters lie to the pollsters, claiming they will vote for the black candidate in order to appear more colorblind than they actually are? Apparently so. Asking questions. If you ask enough questions, strange as they seem at the time, you may actually learn something worthwhile. The first trick of asking questions is to determine if your question is a good one. Just because a question has never been asked does not make it good. Smart people have been asking questions for quite a few centuries now. So many of the questions that have, haven't been asked are bound to yield uninteresting answers. But if you can ask questions that some people really care about and find an answer that may surprise them, that is of course if you can overturn the conventional wisdom, then you may have some luck. It was John Kenneth Galbraith, the hyper-literate economic sage, who coined the phrase conventional wisdom. He did not consider it a compliment. We associate truth with convenience. Therefore, we are here as though to a raft to the ideas which represent our understanding. So the conventional wisdom, in Galbraith's view, must be simple, convenient, comfortable and comforting, though not necessarily true. It would be silly to argue that conventional wisdom is never true. But noticing where conventional wisdom may be false, noticing perhaps the contrails of sloppy or self-interested thinking, it's a nice place to start asking questions. Dealing crack. If crack dealing is the most dangerous job in America, and if the salary is only $3.30 an hour, why on earth would anyone take such a job? Well, for the same reason that a pretty Wisconsin farm girl moves to Hollywood. For the same reason that a high school quarterback wakes up at 5am to lift weights. They all want to succeed in an extremely competitive field, in which, if you reach the top, you are paid a fortune. To the kids growing up in a housing project on Chicago's south side, crack dealing was a glamour profession. The problem with crack dealing is the same as in every other glamour profession. A lot of people are competing for a very few prizes. Earning big money in the crack gang wasn't much more likely than the Wisconsin farm girl becoming a movie star or the high school quarterback playing in the NFL. But criminals, like anyone else, respond to incentives. So if the prize is big enough, they will form a line down the block just hoping for a chance. On the south side of Chicago, people wanting to sell crack vastly outnumbered the available street corners. The law of labor. When there are a lot of people willing and able to do a job, that job generally doesn't pay well. This is one of the four meaningful factors that determine a wage. The others are specialized skills a job requires, the unpleasantries of a job, and the demand for services that job fulfills. The delicate balance between these factors helps explain why, for instance, the typical prostitute earns more than the typical architect. It may not seem as though she should, the architect would appear to be more skilled and better educated. But little girls don't grow up dreaming of becoming prostitutes, so the supply of potential prostitutes is relatively small. Their skills, while not necessarily specialised, are practised in a very specialised context. The job is unpleasant and forbidding in at least two significant ways. The likelihood of violence and the lost opportunity of having a stable family life. As for demand, Let's just say that an architect is more likely to hire a prostitute than vice versa. The tournament. 
An editorial assistant earning $22,000 at a Manhattan publishing house, an unpaid high school quarterback, and a teenage crack dealer earning $3.30 per hour are all playing the same game. A game that is best viewed as a tournament. The rules of the tournament are straightforward. Number one, you must start at the bottom to have a shot at the top. Number two, you must be willing to work long hours and hard at substandard wages. Three, you must prove yourself not merely above average but spectacular. And four, and finally, once you come to the sad realization that you will never make it to the top, you will quit the tournament. Fear. No one is more susceptible to an expert's fear-mongering than a parent. Fear is in fact a major component of the act of parenting. A parent, after all, is the steward of another creature's life. A creature who in the beginning is more helpless than the newborn of nearly any other species. This leads a lot of parents to spend a lot of their parenting energy simply being scared. The problem is that they are often scared of the wrong things. It's not their fault really. Separating facts from rumors is always hard work, especially for a busy parent. And the white noise generated by the experts, to say nothing of the pressure exerted by fellow parents, is so overwhelming that they can barely think for themselves. The facts they do manage to glean or have, have been varnished or exaggerated or otherwise taken out of context to serve an agenda that isn't their own. Swimming pools versus guns. Consider the parents of an 8-year-old girl named, say, Molly, with two best friends, Amy and Imani. Molly's parents know that Amy's parents keep a gun in their house, so they have forbidden Molly to play there. Instead, Molly spends a lot of time at Imani's house, which has a swimming pool in the backyard. Molly's parents feel good about having made such a smart choice to protect their daughter, but according to the data, their choice isn't smart at all. In a given year, there is a drowning of a child for every 11,000 residential pools in the United States. Meanwhile, there is one child killed by a gun for every 1 million plus guns. The likelihood of death by pool, 1 in 11,000, versus death by gun, 1 in 1 million plus, isn't even close. Molly is roughly 100 times more likely to die in a swimming accident at Imani's house than in the gunplay at Amy's. Risk assessors. By most of us are, like Molly's parents, terrible risk assessors. Peter Sandman, a self-described risk communications consultant in Princeton, New Jersey, made this point in early 2004 after a single case of mad cow disease in the United States prompted an anti-beef frenzy. The basic reality, Sandman told the New York Times, is that the risks that scare people and the risks that kill people are very different. Risks that you control are much less a source of outrage than risks that are out of your control. In the case of Mad Cow, it feels like it's beyond my control. I can't tell if my meat has poisons in it or not. I can't see it. I can't smell it. Whereas dirt in my own kitchen is very much in my own control. I can clean my sponges. I can clean the floor. The control principle might also explain why most people are more scared of flying in an aeroplane than driving a car. Their thinking goes like this. Since I control the car, I am the one keeping myself safe. Since I have no control of the aeroplane, I am at the mercy of the marid external factors. What should we fear? So which should we actually fear more, flying or driving? First, ask a more basic question. What exactly are we afraid of?
death, presumably, but we all know that we are bound to die, and we might worry about it casually. But if you are told that you have a 10% chance of dying within the next year, you might worry a lot more, perhaps even choosing to live your life differently. And if you're told that you have a 10% chance of dying within the next minute, you'll probably panic. So it's the imminent possibility of death that drives the fear, which means that the most sensible way to calculate fear of death would be to think about it on a per hour basis. Consider this. If you were taking a trip and have the choice of driving or flying, consider the per hour death rate. It is true that many more people die in the United States each year in a motor vehicle accidents, roughly 40,000 than in plane crashes, fewer than 1,000. But it's also true that people spend a lot more time in their cars than in airplanes. The per hour death rate of driving versus flying, however, is about equal. The two contraponents are equally likely or in the truth unlikely to lead to death and that's a wrap on book 89 freakonomics by stephen levitt subscribe to our channel for future video book summaries and follow us on instagram hashtag best book bits this summary is from the website poorminers.com watch previous video book summaries on our channel and if you like the video and want to purchase the book click the link in the video description to purchase from amazon thanks for watching and i hope you learned a thing or two have a great day